to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33, I'll be reading verses 1 through 26. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. Thus says Yahweh, who made the earth, Yahweh who formed it to establish it, Yahweh is His name, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword, They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of the men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from the city because of all their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them As they were at first, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says Yahweh, in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of Yahweh. Give thanks to Yahweh of hosts, for Yahweh is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land, as at first says Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, In this place that is a waste without man or beast, and in all the cities there shall again be inhabitants of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the cities of the land of... In, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says Yahweh. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Thus says Yahweh, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then 
also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so will I multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying Yahweh has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says Yahweh, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, the heavens declare your glory. And as we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we suppressed that truth and worshiped idols. And praise be to you, you spoke redemptively. In Christ, you said, Let there be light. Where there was darkness, you opened our eyes to behold. His glory. We we deserve not the slightest glimpse of this glory of your redemption that's come in Christ. But for the glory of his name we pray as your people who have seen Him, Father, send Your Spirit now, illumine Your Word, and seeing His glory anew and afresh, may we be conformed more to that image. We cry out for any here for whom this hidden thing that's come to light in Christ is still hidden that you would open their eyes today, Father. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. We've come now to the conclusion of this book. Not the book of Jeremiah, of course, but this book of consolation, this book that began in chapter 30, carries through to chapter 33. It's highly likely that this book, as scholars call it, this book of consolation, really was a distinct book, a distinct portion of Jeremiah that was once its own, stood on its own. The command, the the book opens with this command, Jeremiah 30 and verse 2, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. I've labored uh, when we were at that point in Jeremiah to show you that I don't think all these words is as broad as it's understood whenever Jeremiah receives a command, a similar command in chapter 36 to write all these words. It was a, all these words concerning a very specific subject. What 
is referred to in Luke chapter 2 as the consolation of Israel. These promises of their redemption and restoration. As a conclusion, this chapter does what you would expect it to do. It picks up the various themes and pieces that have been laid down uh, and weaves them together. And yet, as it does so, there's an air of mystery here. There are those familiar, those uh, concrete images of restoration that have been used so often that that they would have recognized, that they would have expected. That restoration and redemption, it would mean these kinds of things. There are those, but then there are these more symbolic and vague elements present here, more, more than perhaps the other chapters. Our text has two halves. The first section is all rooted and centered around this command to call to God and His promise that He will answer and reveal great and hidden things. And the second concerns this everlasting covenant made with David. Many scholars are quick to notice the distinctions between these two halves. But I think there's a reason why Jeremiah, why the Holy Spirit has them together here. Could it be that the great and hidden things are the revelation concerning the righteous branch laid out in the latter half of this chapter? Because this word comes to Jeremiah as the second time while he's in the court of the guard, it falls then even closer to the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, he received that first word during the tenth year of Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah reigns eleven years. Jerusalem was to fall in the fourth month of the eleventh year. And while we can't be certain how much time has passed, there wasn't that much time to pass. We're, we're just that much closer to the fall of Jerusalem now. And the words of the people as we come to them in this chapter suggest that they are hopeless. They've not only lost any hope for the present, it appears they've lost any hope of any future. When Yahweh speaks to Jeremiah this time, the introduction is a bit more elaborate Thus says Yahweh, who made the earth. Yahweh, who formed it to establish it. Yahweh is His name. And two things are stressed in this. Clearly, first, His name is Yahweh. And then, He is the Creator. Made the earth, formed it to establish it. And this takes us back to Jeremiah's prayer in the previous chapter. And God's answer. Jeremiah cried out. Oh, Lord Yahweh, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands. Now he's recalling covenant, which relates to the name of God. You repay the guilt of the fathers to the children, to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. And then whenever Yahweh answers Jeremiah's prayer, behold, I am Yahweh, I am uh, Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Chapter 32 and verse 27. So, covenant, name of God, Yahweh, and creation. Covenant and creation. This section is especially replete with references to 
creation. We've seen that again and again throughout the book of Consolation, but it picks up as we come to its conclusion. You remember the way that this creation covenant language was introduced in the book with a very mysterious promise? Chapter 31, verse 22. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. The anticipated restoration that's being spoken of throughout this chapter. All we saw falls under the umbrella of this thing called the new covenant. And all this creation language, I believe, is telling you that the new covenant will involve a new creation. Out of the nothingness of their destruction, a new creation will come about in their redemption. There are hints all through this that the restoration and redemption of Israel will have a cosmic impact. It will evolve nothing less than, than the fulfillment of the promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse. Now, following this loaded introduction, we have this command to call out to God and the promise that He will answer and show great and hidden things. Verse 3. Who is this command given to? The you is singular. So it could be, your first thought is it's Jeremiah, individual. But it could be Israel collectively. Which one is it? And the grammar alone here isn't sufficient to provide the answer. We need to go to the context. Who's being told to call out and God promised to show them great and hidden things? We might be able to answer that question with another question. What are these great and hidden things? Well, as the chapter goes on to unfold that which is related to them, you see that they're identical to those plans for a future and a hope that chapter 29 and 11 spoke of. Now, a self-intoxicated interpretation of Jeremiah 29 11 is bad enough. But whenever you wed it to a bad interpretation of chapter 33 and verse 3, you get a strong heretical poison. God has great plans for you. Call out to Him, and He'll show them to you. You see, you went from not just being self-centered, but now there's this mystical aspect of it as well, to where you're receiving direct revelation from God concerning His plan for your life. Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do them. Do all the words of this law. So John Doe is worried about whether or not he should marry Jill or Jane. And he cries out to God to reveal this to him. He's seeking knowledge of the hidden things. But what John should really concern himself with is, are Jill and Jane, either one of them, a Christian? He has enough on his plate if he will just stick to the revealed things of God to know what he should do. Is, his relation, is he pursuing Jill and Jane at the same time? Well, then the answer to his question of, as to what God's will in this situation is not who should he marry, but that he should repent. Now, sometimes what is hidden is revealed. 
God does reveal the hidden things. But that always concerns the major plot line of the story, not our role as minor characters. It's the, it's the major plot line that tells us how to march out our roles. But the revelation God gives isn't concerning our little minor part directly anyway. The great and hidden things here are revelation. Such as the Bible that you hold in your hands. They're that caliber of things. They're, they're revelation. They concern the plans for a future and a hope. They concern the hope and consolation of Israel. They concern her redemption and restoration. They concern those coming days that have been spoken so much of. They concern the new covenant and new creation. These hidden things are the mystery that Paul says has now been revealed to the church. In Colossians, he explains that he became a minister of the church He writes, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And shortly he goes on to speak of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, back to that question. To whom does God speak? Saying, call to me, and I will show you great and hidden things. It is Jeremiah. This is not a command that you can appropriate with a one-to-one kind of correlation. God's revelation is always mediated. He raises up apostles and prophets. But we want God to speak to us and about us. God speaks far better. He speaks to His people through prophets and apostles about Jesus For us. If we are to run with this command in any way, it's this. Our Christ should not be one for revelation, but for illumination. We shouldn't cry out for revelation concerning the hidden things of God. We should cry out for illumination of the apostolic word. The mystery of Christ that's been disclosed to His church through the prophets and the apostles. And the grounds given for calling out to God are what God has already spoken. Verse 4, Call to me, I will answer you, will tell you of great and hidden things that you have not known. For, because, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, He says something concerning the city. Concerning the city that they have broken down the houses of the city, the houses of the kings of Judah, to make a defense. Something of this mystery has already been disclosed to Jeremiah here. 
And it doesn't concern this destruction. This destruction at one point was mysterious. It's playing out now right in front of Jeremiah's eyes. So it concerns the city, but it's not the city, it doesn't concern the city's destruction. The city's destruction is just identifying which city God is speaking of. So this mystery in some way has already been disclosed to Jeremiah and it concerns the city. But yet more disclosure is promised if Jeremiah will call out. Daniel received revelation and it was revelation that he was puzzled by and then he inquired and he received further information. He received revelation about revelation. Daniel seven fifteen through 16 As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the, of the things. So something like that is at play here. We have this word of destruction identifying which city this, these great and hidden things concern. But the revelation isn't concerning her destruction. That's being fulfilled and played out. It's concerning her redemption. The redemption that's promised still remains veiled. This redemption spoken of in verses 6 through 9. Concerning this city, the city that's to be destroyed and filled with dead bodies. And by the verses 4 and 5 are really difficult. I don't know if you noticed that. Just reading them, it's confusing. The syntax in the original language is confusing. It's hard. But this is one of those places where you learn that whenever you have difficulties in the original text, they don't impact meaning. Though you, you're left wondering, I don't know exactly how all that's working in verses 4 and 5 concerning the destruction. You're left under you have no mistake in missing the meaning of the text still. Like the, the text in translation, in the original language, it's confusing. But yet, even though you're confused, you know exactly what's being said. It's speaking of her destruction. So concerning the city that Yahweh in His wrath and anger, this city that Yahweh is turning His face from, concerning it, Yahweh promises one. Healing, verse 6. The wounds that he has inflicted, he will heal. In chapter 30, verses 12 through 15, he told them, Thus says Yahweh, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of, an, of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. And yet shortly God promises them. I will restore health to you. Your wounds I will heal declares Yahweh. Because they have called you an outcast. A design for whom no one cares. Chapter 30 verse 17. Second he promises restoration. Verse 7. This phrase that he'll restore their fortunes. Occurs seven times throughout the book of consolation. He'll restore their fortunes. Of both Israel and Judah. So there's not just restoration. But prior to that. There is reunification. And they will be restored. As at the first. Which makes clear. This is not something. 
that was fulfilled but only hinted at whenever they returned under Cyrus with the rebuilding of the temple walls and with the temple and the walls of the city under Nehemiah and Ezra. Three, he will cleanse them and forgive their sin, verse 8. He will cleanse them and forgive their sin. This promise, verse 8, it's just astonishing when you reflect on what you have seen in 32 chapters of Jeremiah prior to this. He will cleanse and forgive. Think of the mass of sins you've seen. Think of how gross and perverse the sins you've seen in Jeremiah have been. And recall how often you have seen your own sin in their sin. God promises, I will cleanse. And I will forgive. This is a cleanup operation that makes Chernobyl look like a box of spilled crayons. He will cleanse and forgive their sins. Before, the city will be to him a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth, so that, five, the nations fear and tremble for all the good and prosperity Yahweh provides for the city, verse 9. You remember whenever God redeemed His people out of Egypt, as He was bringing them into the land promised them, the name of Yahweh went ahead of them and they feared Yahweh and His people. I think that's at play here, but I think something more is intended. I think it's saying that they will fear not the way that the Canaanites in general did. They will fear the way Rahab did. The nations will fear God the way Rahab feared God because of what He's doing in faithfulness to His promises made to His people so that those who are not His people become His people. They fear Yahweh as their God. The next section of our text also contrasts their present destruction with future restoration using this recurring phrase. See this in verses 10 through 13. In this place. In the cities. In this place there will be first voices. And then second Shepherds and flocks. Now of this place, they're currently saying it is a waste and it is without man or beast. And it is. It's a waste. This is what they're saying of it. You get the sense of there's, there's a negative tone to this. They're saying of it, this land is a waste. It's desolate. It's without man or beast. But it is. Verse 12 What they said, Yahweh says. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast. And yet, do you not sense there's there's a distinction between whenever they say, this place is a waste without land or beast, without man or beast, and when Yahweh says it. Because Yahweh here goes on and he's saying something else about this place that is a waste. You get the sense that This is all they're saying about this place. It's a waste. They say, this place is a waste. And that's true. But they say it as though that is all that is true. In our laments, our problem 
so often is not that what we are saying is not true. It's that we're saying it as though it were all that is true. So that our lament is not of faith. It's full of unbelief, you see. In this present wasteland, God says there will be heard voices. Voices of mirth, of gladness, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom. The voice of thanksgiving. Songs sung to God as they bring thank offerings to the house of Yahweh, verse 11. And their song is one of thankfulness for His unfailing covenant love. That word steadfast love is a is a loaded word in the original language. It speaks of God's covenant love. It, it has the idea, if the best translation is perhaps, you can't do a one word to translate this one word in Hebrew. Steadfast love is a good attempt, but perhaps unfailing covenant love might be the best way to translate the idea of this word. It's, this is a common refrain. Give thanks to Yahweh of hosts, for Yahweh is good for His steadfast love endures forever. This is a common refrain throughout the Psalms, but nowhere... Is it more prevalent than in the 136th Psalm? 26 verses all end with the refrain, For His steadfast love endures forever. The main body of that psalm recall all these instances throughout Israel's history in which God demonstrated His unfailing covenant love for them again and again. I don't want to go through all that body, but do listen to the introduction and conclusion of that psalm. Psalm 136, 1-9. Give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see so many of the same themes popping up here? And then the psalm ends, saying, It is He who remembered us in our low estate, for His steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. This is written before the exile, mind you. For His steadfast love endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh. For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For His steadfast love endures forever. And the reason why they sing so is because God will restore the fortunes of the land as at first. And then also, verses 12-13, through 13, in this present wasteland... That's without man, there will be shepherds. It's without beast, there will be flocks. And while this is clearly just familiar language, it's potent imagery. It's very concrete image for them of what the land looked like as at first when God blessed them. 
I think there might be something more. With this, the shepherds and their flocks become this image of God's redemption. And on the eve of the birth of the one who is the righteous branch to spring up from David, who's the first to learn of it? And that you go immediately from this, this shepherd flock into coming days whenever God causes a righteous branch to spring up from David is suggestive. Now, could it be now that what we have concerning this righteous branch is the answer that Jeremiah received upon calling out to God? God answering him. There's certainly a kind of hiddenness, a kind of mysteriousness to what comes from this point forward. Days are coming when Yahweh will fulfill the promise made to the house of Israel and Judah, verse 14. So you got this promise of reunifying the people again, and it's a promise of fulfillment. And you remember, this is the Christ, this righteous branch is the Christ who said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that this righteous branch springs up for David, verse 15, says something about the shape of the Davidic dynasty when he comes. He springs up for David. Isaiah communicates this as well. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. Not a branch from a trunk, but a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah 11.1. 1. This branch will spring forth not from some sprawling oak or from some towering pine. It comes from a stump. And this branch is one that will prove greater than the tree that was felled. That he is the righteous branch. He's one who executes justice is in contrast to all those sons of Josiah that followed him that fall very far from this tree. This prophecy concerning this righteous branch who will execute justice and righteousness is given in nearly identical terms in chapter 23. And there it was preceded by a warning concerning the shepherds, the kings of Israel who have scattered his flock. And in contrast to them, you have this righteous branch. This branch will... Bring Judah's salvation, Jerusalem's peace, verse 16. But there is one significant difference between chapter 23 and chapter 33 concerning this righteous branch. In chapter 23, it's the branch whose name is Yahweh as our righteousness. And in chapter 33, it's the city whose name is Yahweh our righteousness. What gives? The answer's in the name, is it not? Yahweh is our righteousness. The name itself tells you how this works. He is our righteousness. What you have here is the bride taking the name of her husband. His name is Yahweh, our righteousness. Our name is Yahweh is 
our righteousness. His assets become hers. His righteousness clothes her. But the most mysterious thing about this, we live on the other side of the fulfillment of this. We, we get this. But the next part is mysterious even to us, I think, on first impression. The grounds. Verse 17. For, thus says Yahweh, David will not lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That all makes sense. That puzzle piece fits this puzzle. But whereas we thought we were simply building a castle, the next piece we're handed belongs to the temple. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in, any, uh, in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So as grounds for this righteous branch springing up from David, for David, for the salvation and peace of God's people, the grounds of it that God will never lack a man, David will never lack a man to sit on David's throne. And the Levitical priest will never lack a man to minister. Now you first think of David saying that the Messiah, the Christ, the King, will also be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. But, you know that Hebrews makes a clear distinction between the superior priesthood of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. Such that one brings to completion everything symbolized here of this priesthood that's ended. So, we got an idea of how it might fit, but it seems like you need a hammer to get that piece in the puzzle. There's a turn coming, though, that I think will make clear what's intended here. Just pause on that, though. To emphasize the certainty of these promises, God makes the same argument twice now. The rest of this letter, you have the same argument presented two times with different nuances and and shades and details, verses 19 through 26. And in these two arguments, you have three covenants mentioned. The point is to demonstrate concerning one of those covenants that it is everlasting, it is unbreakable. So first, verse 20, God's covenant with David can be broken if they're able to break God's covenant with the night and His covenant with the day. A very similar language was used concerning the new covenant in chapter 31. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is His name. If the fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. And that's all under the promise of the new covenant in chapter 31. So this passage 
excuse me, that passage in chapter 31 is critical in helping us understand that the fulfillment of God's covenant with David as it is an everlasting covenant happens within the new covenant. But I think it also helps you identify what is the covenant with night and day. In the Noahic covenant, God told Noah, while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8, 6, 8, 22. But that similar language concerning a fixed order for the stars, which are not mentioned here, and the way the fixed order is mentioned again in verse 25 of our text, recall strongly Genesis 1 through 3. And you recognize that so many elements of Genesis 1 through 3 are reiterated, recommanded, presented again in God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant with Noah, what happens in the Noah story is like a reboot. So much of what happened in Genesis 1 and 3, it happens again there. So I think what's, what's being spoken of here, God's covenant with the night and with the day, this fixed order, it is speaking both of this fixed order that God established at creation and that is covenanted freshly with fallen man and Noah serves as the guarantee of sorts for the everlasting covenant made with David here. Notice how strong this argument is. God does not say if the sun and moon ever get out of order then I'll forsake my covenant with David. That's not the argument. That would be an incredible argument. That would be a reassuring argument. But it goes beyond that. It doesn't say, if the stars stop shining at night, if the sun doesn't rise, it doesn't say that. It says, if you can break God's covenant, if you can make it happen, then his covenant with David can be broken. This isn't about the sun burning out. That is an imaginable possibility. It's about you being able to snuff the sun out. That is an unimaginable thing. If man can do this, God will break Not only his covenant with David, but again, you see it, verse 21, with the Levitical priest. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, and my covenant with the Levitical priest, my ministers. Covenant with the priest. Now, this is a covenant we don't don't think of often. You may just be thinking, that's part of the covenant of Moses. But there was something even more specific and directed in that. You remember after Phinehas and zeal for Yahweh killed the man who brought the Midianite woman into the camp? God spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore I say, behold, I give to him... Like, this is already something that I think the language is saying here. What he already established with Aaron 
in separating the Levites. Now he's directing even more specifically to Phineas. Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Nehemiah 13.29 speaks of the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Malachi 2, 4-9 speaks of the covenant with Levi. Now we got that weird puzzle piece again. How are we to turn it? Notice how it's spoken of as being fulfilled, verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered for the sands of the sea, cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so will I multiply the offspring of David my servant and the the Levitical priest who minister to me. What are we to make of this? The language that's so long been used to speak of the offspring of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is now used concerning the offspring of David and Levi. Listen to what I believe the New Covenant makes of this. 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves, remember Peter how he's using all this language concerning Israel and using it of the church throughout his letter? 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews says all the sacrifices are ended. And here we're told of a perpetual priesthood that will continually offer up sacrifices and it's peculiar that it's the thank offering that's mentioned. What what is this priesthood? It's the new Israel, the church. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, descendants of both David and Levi. Revelation 5, 9-10, worthy are you, they say to the Lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom, royalty, and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So that's the first cycle of this argument. Second cycle, verses 23 through 26. The people are saying, Yahweh has rejected the two clans that He chose. Who's saying this? Jeremiah, it's just assumed. Have you not heard this? Something he would have heard. I think that, that while this could be the nations saying this of Israel, Yahweh's rejected her. And that would go along with what we saw in chapter 30 and verse 17. Well, that could be true. I think it more likely, could be either way, I think it more likely the people are saying this of themselves. They've become the people who have de-peopled themselves. This land is a waste. 
God has rejected His people. They're without hope not only for the present, but for the future. Whichever it is, it matters not. Whoever says it, it doesn't matter. God says, if the fixed order of the heavens can be eliminated, then he would reject the offspring of David so that he would not rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point is, he will then surely restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. There are things in this revelation given to Jeremiah, these hidden things that have now come to light in Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that angels longed to look into these things. 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets, Jeremiah, spoke these things and he searched and inquired about this righteous branch from David. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And though... These things have been revealed in Christ. They remain hidden to many. But their need is not for revelation directly from God. Their need is for illumination of the revelation He's already given. Paul explains this to the Corinthians. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in Him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Jeremiah and Paul received revelation. And that revelation is understood by the people of God who have the Spirit of God. And illumination. What saints and sinners alike both need is not some direct revelation from God. They need the illumination of the Holy Spirit of 
the Spirit-given word concerning Christ. They need not revelation as though they're an apostle or a prophet. They need illumination of the prophetic and apostolic word concerning Christ. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul continues to speak of the same matters, saying, since we have such a hope, and it's the same hope that's spoken of right here in Jeremiah, since we have this hope of restoration and redemption in Christ, the surpassing glory that's come in Christ, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He goes on to say, This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, he's speaking of his apostolic ministry, by the mercy of God, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Through the preached word of Christ. How was that word received? Through His prophets and apostles. Too many today are seeking some kind of direct experience. A direct kind of word. Direct revelation. From God. And they're seeking it about all the wrong things. What they need to hear. Is a word. About the living word Jesus Christ. And the place where they hear. A word about the living word. Is in the written word. And the way that any sense is made by them of the written word spiritually is by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, so that they see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that glory is what not only sinners. But saints need. Sinners need it for their salvation, meaning their conversion, their regeneration, their having faith so that they're justified. Sinners need it for their salvation. Saints need it for their salvation, for their sanctification and growth in Christ likeness. And so, 
Let us both alike, sinner and saint, cry out to God, going to His holy word prayerfully, asking that the Spirit of God might give us eyes to see the glory of the righteous branch sprung up for and from David, the King who rules for our redemption, and the priest who ministers for our redemption. Let's pray. Holy Father, open our eyes that we might see great and wondrous things in your law. That we might see Christ and be conformed to his image. Sinner and saint alike today that may be with us. Father, have mercy on our souls and speak Christ through your word. For your glory, for His glory, in His name, Amen.